Welcome to New Piney Grove Baptist Church, where one of our core values is Christian education. Let's tune in to this week's message. Your reading assignment, church family, is uh, really Hebrews, the entire book, but specifically chapter 7 through chapter 13. And in doing so, prayerfully, this message will have a greater impact on you. So I began to ask God, okay, uh, uh, I put down there some months ago that this would be the theme, the joy of leadership. What was I thinking? How in the world am I going to make a message out of this? And then a thought came to me about when I was first saved or when I first came to Christ. Young fellowship over there in uh, Holland and Germany, which bordered each other. God used them to bring me to faith. And as we got together in our little small group, there was a song that was often sang uh, every Sunday or so that was entitled, I Still Have Joy. And this is one of those songs that we debated about in faith development uh, when we look at the fruits of the spirits on Wednesday night, should we sing song that we ain't living now? In the church where I attended over there in Germany, I witnessed many people singing the song, I Still Have Joy, and they would sing it very loudly, getting up and dancing, I Still Have Joy on Sunday. But when something happened on Monday that week, I didn't see no joy. Same thing with us today. See, the problem is that we really don't understand this word from a biblical perspective, joy. The New Testament word is a little different than the one that Jeff talked about. We talk about joy. The Greek word is kara. And kara differs greatly from our English concept of joy. Please note that kara is not an experience, it's a result. Kara is not a response, it's an outcome. Just hold on, I'll try to make that make sense to you later on. Kara is something that is caused a sense of delight from the results of future completed tasks. Say that again. Something that caused a delight from a future completed task. Can I give you a couple of examples? How many of you have ever been on some type of physical fitness program? Was this workout? Lifting weights, walking or running. And how many of you can not say you really, really enjoyed that? But 
it didn't take much. I remember when Jeff and I uh, started first strength training, lifting a little weight. You know, shortly after I retired, I started gaining the weight. And I just didn't like it at all. But then one day when I looked in the mirror, I saw one little cut. It could have been an old folks wrinkle. I don't know. But I took that as a result. And next day I'm pumping iron. Yeah, I'm pumping iron. That, that, that don't get you? I know I see a few college students out, out here. How many of you know that when you really didn't do it the way you should have, you end up cramming that night? You didn't want to do it, but you knew if you didn't do it, you wasn't going to pass that test. So you got a sense of the light that what I am doing is going to be worth it. All right, I've read about giving this one, but I'm going to give it anyway. Give another example. Cosmetic surgery. I should have got some, ooh. Botox lift. A J-Lo behind. Or let's just be playing your breast implant. None of that is pleasant. But you go to the surgeon anyway. Because you're looking at the results. You gladly pay your money. I'm not talking about those that had to have it because of surgery. I'm talking about those that just doing it because of vanity. Kawa implies that the outcome of an accomplishment with results in greater satisfaction. This is the message that the author of Hebrews wants his readers to understand about Jesus in our key verse in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. But before we get there, let's just take a journey as we start with chapter 10. The writer reveals factors which inspire our Savior to press on toward the cross. It was because of joy of a completed task and thereby accomplishing the Father's will and purpose that he proceeded on. Listen to me. Our Savior task was not pleasant. It was painful. It was disappointing. It was even embarrassing. But knowing the end results, remember the old song I'm going to run on and see what the end's going to be? The reason you don't get joy because you stop running. Jesus was obedient even to death. Our Savior focus was not on his suffering, but it was on our salvation. Can I say that again? Our Savior focus was not on his suffering, it was on our salvation. Because Adam's disobedience broke the fellowship that humanity had with the Creator. But the Creator, desiring to have fellowship and communion with us, he put a plan in motion to reestablish that communication. And that plan consists of five what is known in theological circles as dispensations. Dispensation is a big word that simply means periods of time. 
The first dispensation was conscious. It gave man the ability to think for himself. Before the fall, Adam and Eve did not know what good and evil was. But when they partook of the fruit, they began to have conscience. They knew what was evil and what was good, but man still failed. Even though he knew what was wrong, he still did it wrong. The next dispensation was human government, which allowed other people to help other people in their dealing with their conscience. Human government failed. The results of that was the Tower of Babel. The third one is the law, and that's what we're going to deal with. Just for your information, the fourth one is grace, and the fifth one is the millennial. We won't get to that. We'll talk a little about grace, though. But the law, the law, the foundation of the law was ritual-based, and it dealt with the sacrifice of animals. These animals served as a substitute for man's sin so he could continue to have fellowship with God. Now let's look at our text because the Hebrew writer writes this in chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these reality, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law was never intended to be a permanent solution to the sin problem. And since sacrifice were required, sacrifice of animal, it proved that the law was not perfect because you had to do it again. Then the author makes, asks a rhetorical question, one that already has an answer. And then he makes an emphatic statement, the question. Otherwise, would they not have ceased, talking about the sacrifice, to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. Now, here's the emphatic statement, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, instead of taking away sin, the law was a reminder of sin. There's a modern application to this that I want to share with you. Every first Sunday, we come here to participate in communion after the word. It's a reminder that Jesus died to pay our sin debt. But we should also remember that we still sin. So how can it do it once and for all? See, we have the privilege now of being able to go directly to God and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. Prior to this, you couldn't sacrifice your own animal. You could have all the animals in the world. They could be the firstborn spotless. But you couldn't sacrifice your own animal. The priest had to. 
And even the priest couldn't sacrifice his dog. Now another priest had to do it. And then once a year, they went into the tabernacle where the high priest was sacrificed for the sins of the nation. But Jesus' sacrifice canceled the dispensation of the law and ushered in the dispensation of grace. Somebody say hallelujah. See, grace is undeserved. Grace is unearned. It's simply just God's favor. Grace was the perfect and permanent solution to sin problem. It was something that the blood of animals could not do. Why? Because animals don't have souls. Animals do things instinctively. You and I consciously sin. Even when we try to stop, we find ourselves doing it. But we have an awareness of it. We just can't help ourselves. That's another issue. I know because I tried it. I tried to clean my life up myself. And while I did not commit the acts of sin, my mind always thought about the acts of sin. You see, it was man that got us into this mess of sin problem by the name of Adam. But the Bible said the new Adam, which is Jesus, he had the cure for the sin problem. So the writer writes this in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offering and sin offering, you have taken no pleasure. Two things. God didn't desire it. He didn't want it. But you needed it. That's what he said in the Old Testament. Saying, you needed it. He didn't want it. But you needed it. That's the only way he could have a relationship with you. He didn't have no pleasure in it. Why? Because he knew something else was coming. Thou hast prepared a body for me. This is the Christmas story from Jesus' point of view. It's really called the incarnation of Christ. This word incarnation comes from the word canality, which means flesh. The word of God took on human flesh and became that perfect and permanent sacrifice. We get our word Christmas from Christ masked himself in human flesh. So if anybody asks you what Christmas is all about, ain't about all those things you see on TV. It ain't about some of those things you learn. It's about Christ masking himself. He took on human flesh. He said, you prepare a body for me. And the purpose of that body was to become that sacrifice. Hebrews 10 and 10. I want you to think with me here, because he had the body, because he masked himself, and because he gave that body sacrifice, the writer writes this in verse 10. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified. 
The word simply means to be set apart. Sanctification is both instantly and progressively. We were set apart instantly for salvation from the moment that we accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believing in his death and resurrection. I don't care how you felt. I don't care what you did. But if you really believe that according to the word of God, then you were set apart. You might have did your own thing, but you were set apart. The problem is the progressiveness of it. See, progressive means we are being set apart for Christian work and service. Sometimes we just get to be rebellious. And God has to put some things in our way to try to get us back on track. And even some people, God had just said, okay, you ain't going to get it. Come on up here with me. Premature death. We often talk about premature birth, but there's premature death for the Christian. We're progressively set apart for work and service. And then the writer goes on to say in verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Don't stop right there for me. Because some people really don't have confidence in the fact of what Jesus did for them. We allow our failures, Jeff, to cause fear. I mean, I say I'm saved, but I keep messing up. Maybe I ain't saved. Because I keep on messing up. But it ain't about you and what you're doing. It's about what he has already done. It's a progressive thing that he's still trying to work in you. If you really are saved, if you really believe that. Verse 20 says, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Don't stop right there, man. The problem is that a lot of times we can't forgive ourselves for what we're doing. But if Christ said that you can enter to me. And what's the purpose of him, uh, us entering to him? To ask for forgiveness. And I am convinced that one of the things Satan is doing is trying to make you think your sin ain't sin, so you're going to ask for forgiveness. Oh, I'm not talking about those big things. We know about the adultery, lying, cheating, and killing. But what about the love? What about the forgiveness? What about all those things he tell us to do? What, what about those things? But the bottom line is whatever you have done, you ain't got to wait on a high priest no more. You ain't got to wait on a priest. You can go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness right then. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, can we stop right there and talk again? By becoming the sacrifice, Jesus became the Savior. And now is he, and notice it said, great priest. If there's anything you can get 
higher than high is great. This was the joy of Jesus that the author of the Hebrews was speaking of. You see, humanity had doomed us to the imprisonment of eternal separation from our Creator. When we go through communion here, you'll see the the veil represents, I can't get to you, God. So he said, you can't get to me, but I can get to you. So he tore the veil so that we could come in and say, Father, I messed up. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful to being able to pray God, say, God, forgive me. And I ain't too prideful to know when I done messed up. You say, God, forgive me. First John 1 and 9, we confess our fault. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's why a lot of us see are going through the same thing because we ain't confessing. We ain't admitting that we got a problem. Dr. Dunbar, I think I'm right in this, but one of the first things that a drug addict has to do is you got to admit you a drug addict. You got to admit you got a problem. And for some of us Christians that have been saved at the moment, we got to admit that we got a problem. I am still sinning, Lord. Oh, no, I'm not. But I'm gossiping. And the Bible speaks of that. Oh, no, I'm not. But I'm eating too much. I'm gluttony. The Bible speaks of that. We just got to be real. We are sinful beings. That's why he made this way. He didn't give us an avenue to come to him to ask for forgiveness if we didn't need it. We need it. Oh, no, I don't. But you think you're better than everybody else. That's pride. And the Bible speaks of that. Every time there's a conversation, it's all about you, all about your children, all about your family, or even all about your church. So by tearing the veil, we got something going on. We ought to be happy about that. See, we can get prideful in preaching. We can get prideful in singing. We can get prideful in praying. And when we acknowledge those, God white, slate clean. What you think about this is a privilege. That's a privilege. Even if you just go in and say thank you, it's a privilege. And all to repent. Motivate or prompt a response in us. That response ought to be one of gratitude. The writer of Hebrew understood that. So in the latter part of chapter 10, he invites his reader, as I'm going to invite you, to join him in three things. 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what Jesus did already for you on the cross. Can can I be graphic right here? 
You were a baby that pooped all over himself. I ain't seen a baby yet that's able to run the water and clean himself. You show me a you show me a newborn that can do that, I'm gonna show you a miracle. But that was you. But he's the one that cleansed you, puts you on a new set of pampers and waiting until you mess those up too. So you need to draw live with full assurance of faith. I've been clean. Y'all remember the song? I've been Thanks for listening. We pray that you have been blessed by the message. Visit us on the web at npgbc.org for contact information, service times, or directions to our place of worship.